Yeah, it's almost like it hops up his horses on crazy amounts of steroids, but easy, I don't know. Easy, easy Neil. <laughs> this is going to get cut. That's going to get cut. No, keep it. A lot of people are saying that and it's horse racing. No one cares. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is September 8th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Not bad, not bad. And from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I need to talk about... The trajectory of Novak Djokovic from my favorite men's tennis player to getting thrown out of the U.S. Open. Like, what a roller coaster he has been on this year, in my personal estimation. I mean, <laughs> if you had been on life. if you had been on Team Federer from the beginning, this just would never have been a problem. Exactly. Just saying, exactly. just saying. In many ways, Neil and I have been vindicated. Sarah. <laughs> If you haven't listened to the show before, Sarah has very strange taste in men's tennis players. <laughs> it's not that strange. I just like Djokovic more than Federer. My Federer antipathy antipathy went goes back to um to uh, Andy Roddick. That's really why I don't like Federer. Oh, okay. Neither here nor right. there. You're helping my case here because Andy Roddick <laughs> is not exactly the pinnacle of likability. No, he is likable. I love Andy Roddick. You kind of like the, the the guys, you know, the hotheads. Let's call them that. You know, the the fiery ones. I suppose so. Yeah. Were you probably. a McEnroe fan back in that era? <laughs> I mean, I was a little young, but but yes, I guess. Sure. Who wasn't a McEnroe fan? I guess lots oh. of people. Okay. Many maybe I have a maybe I have a type. <laughs> most, most people. <laughs> what do you guys? But what do you guys think about that rule about about getting disqualified for for throwing the ball? I thought it was ridiculous. I, I it, like honestly that that was way too severe. Look at it compared to other sports. That was just way too severe of a punishment for what he had done. And like honestly. That was not his intended action to hit that woman in the throat with a ball. I mean, it just happened to happen like that. And I don't know. Yeah, but you can't do that. I mean, come on. Like, you you know that there there are people standing behind you uh, that if you hit the ball in, in anger, it might hit someone. I don't know. I didn't have much sympathy. But again... I don't have much sympathy for him to begin with. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you, but I still think like it didn't seem like he hit it that hard. I, I think it's interesting. Like in other sports, if you if you make contact with an official, you're going to get ejected. But in other sports, that doesn't end your season or your you know whatever. It's just a game. Um, that's sort of the problem with tournament tennis. Like you're out, you're you're out. Yeah, but it would be like, yeah, if LeBron like, you know, slammed the ball down and it happened to hit like a ref in the in the face and then he got kicked out of you know disqualified from the rest of the NBA playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. That would be kind of funny though. I mean you gotta admit (laughs) it'd just be ridiculous. All right. So take the derby. We're not going to talk about the derby. I wasted all my my allotted derby segment in in the pre podcast chatter on this, but whatever. I lost again. <laughs> That's all that anyone needs to know. Did Jeff's bet on the Kentucky Derby come through? All right. <laughs> on today's show, we'll preview the NFL season and talk about what we're looking forward to as the games get started. We'll also look ahead to the start of a new season of Premier League Soccer, and we'll chat about it with the man in our virtual control room, Tony Chow. And finally, in place of our usual rabbit hole of the week, we'll have an interview with author Reed Forgrave about his moving new book on high school football. We are, believe it or not, just two days away from the return of professional football, with the Houston Texans taking on the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs on Thursday. Accordingly, we are updating our predictions for the sure-to-be-completely-normal-and-straightforward 2020 season. One thing that does feel more normal than not is the news from last Sunday that the Texans gave QB Deshaun Watson a four-year contract extension, 
which doesn't put him quite up there with Kansas City's Patrick Mahomes, but pretty close. Watson's contract is worth a total of $177.54 million with nearly $111 million in guarantees. That makes it the second largest total contract in NFL history. On ESPN's Get Up, Ryan Clark was positive about Houston's deal with with Watson, especially when compared to a deal that didn't get done for a different quarterback in Texas. I mean, for Deshaun Watson, he got the deal that he was supposed to get. And I think the first thing I thought about was, man, Dak was right. Dak had the right numbers. Mm. He was just the wrong person because (laughs) this is the deal that many talked about that Dak Prescott wanted to get and he couldn't get it but Deshaun Watson does because he's earned it he deserves it but more importantly Bill O'Brien and that organization thought that he deserved this type of deal and Bill O'Brien had to do this after making some of those moves that you heard Mike talk about he had to come back and say you know what I'm with this franchise and going forward this is going to be our face we will build around Deshaun Watson We've seen some huge deals and also some huge moves at quarterback in the lead up to this season. Jeff, which do you think will have the biggest implications for the season? The Texans and the Chiefs locking down Watson and Mahomes and then the Cowboys failing to make a deal with Dak Prescott or moves like Tom Brady to Tampa Bay? Well, I I don't think this Dak Prescott contract situation will ultimately um, have an impact on this season. I think he's, he's, he's not, you know, He's under the franchise tag, so I think it's really more a down-the-line Cowboys future situation. He obviously deserves um, that same money that I think Watson and Mahomes also rightly deserve. Um, but yeah, I, I, the bigger the bigger thing w- with regards to Watson is you know is that team any good? Uh, that's that's uh, to be determined. Um, they obviously lost, you know, Watson also lost his top receiver in the offseason um, to Arizona. With Hopkins were in Arizona, and now they have David Johnson, which is doesn't seem like a worthy uh, uh, prize for losing such a, a receiver of that caliber. So, uh, you know, I'm, ne- I'm always down on Bill O'Brien led teams. So <laughs> I, I think I'm more down on them this year. Um, whereas the Cowboys, honestly, I'll tell you right now, I'm very high on, I think the Cowboys look awesome. And now Dak has even more weapons. They got CD lamb as a, a rookie receiver. And I think they already have that great offensive line. They have Zeke. Um, they have Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup. I mean, I think that offense is going to be really, really solid. Um, in the NFC, and I think their defense is, you know, also very good too. So they are, to me, the team to beat in the NFC. Um, whereas Tom Brady, Tampa Bay, I, this is—I I can't give a good prediction on, on what's going to happen there. It, it will be fun to watch, whatever happens. <laughs> do you think though that do like with with the contracts? I'm I'm always wondering if you know a, a team that a quarterback that is in a secure, like wrapped up contract situation. Do they play better? Do they play? I mean, are they giving more of themselves? Maybe I wonder about that with Dak not getting that contract. Will that be a problem? Do you think, Neil? I mean, you know, it's tough to say because I think if you look back in the past and you find situations where maybe quarterbacks didn't get locked into the long contracts, there might be other reasons why in terms of like their performance or, you know, the the dreaded are they truly elite question. So that's what makes this Dak thing so bizarre is that I think he's proven over the years, at least from a statistical standpoint, that he does belong in the same conversation. So it it is a key component of the NFL um, team building strategy right now uh, with the cap being the way it is and rookie contracts being what they are and then the way that they escalate into these extensions that are really um, expensive for quarterbacks that that's like the fundamental calculus that you have to do when you're building a team is uh, the the guy that we're giving this massive contract to and tying up so much of our cap in, which will necessarily mean spending less on a supporting cast and especially on defense in a lot of cases, is that going to be worth it? And can we win a championship with that? And, you know, I think Dak Prescott is is more in the camp of you could win a championship with him uh with with the right weapons than not you know i he's he's better than kirk cousins for instance sorry to keep dumping on cousins uh but so i think that that maybe dak is like we should coin a term for like 
the the DAC barrier, the DAC line. You know, it's like <laughs> that was a line where it's like this is the level of quarterback where it's like if you're anywhere above that, you're Deshaun Watson or Patrick Mahomes, and it's like a no-brainer to give you the massive record-breaking contract extension. And if you're anywhere below that, you either don't get the extension or you're like an Andy Dalton where it's like the, the thing looks bad within like weeks of signing it, and you're like, oh, that was a mistake. I think we need to come up with that metric and backronym Dak or Prescott. Prescott would be hard, um, but that would be really fun. <laughs> that quarterback above contract. I don't know. Contract with a K. Yeah, contract with a K. <laughs> like the band Corn with a K. Absolutely. So we are five thirty eight is launching its uh, NFL predictions on Wednesday. Neil, what does our model say about the season so far? Well, you might be surprised to learn that the Kansas City Chiefs are favorites to win the Super Bowl. Oh, wait, they won it last year also. They're at 14%, which is, I think that's pretty par for the course for, um, you know, predicting going forward. Uh, you have to remember that there are extra playoff teams this year in the NFL, which amid everything else that's been going on, I think we've kind of forgotten about. Uh, and so... I mean, baseball, uh, it, it was more noticeable because they just increased so greatly, whereas football was already letting in more teams than baseball. Uh, so it's a more gradual change, but it's worth noting. And I think that's why the Chiefs, you know, I think we've seen the Patriots be, you know, when they were preseason favorites in a earlier era, you know, be it like, I don't know, 20% or something going into a season, 18, 20%. That seems to be the norm. So 14 for a defending champ is maybe a little on the low side. Uh, then we have the Ravens at 12%, the Saints at 9%, uh, the Niners are at 7%. So uh, the the other Super Bowl participant from last year is just fourth highest in Super Bowl odds. Then the Steelers, that's a little interesting, at 5%, yeah. Ben Roethlisberger coming back from injury, and then Jeff's Cowboys, which I will refer to them from now on as. Uh, Jeff's Cowboys, yeah. The Packers at 4%. Uh, the Eagles at 4%, the Bucks at 4%, the Titans at 4% with uh, Ryan Tannehill, and then uh, the Seahawks also at 4, 4%, and then you get the Patriots at 3%. Yeah, I want to talk more about both of the teams associated with Tom Brady. I mean, I am I think I'm, I can't imagine that I'm alone in being super curious about how those two teams turn out, both the Patriots and the Buccaneers. Like, I... The Patriots, well, Neil, you wrote a story about the Patriots uh, and what their problems might be that have nothing to do with losing Tom Brady. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Uh, if, if you look at the comparison between Brady of 2019 versus Cam Newton from, you know, the last time that he was healthy and he seems healthy again, we should note that, um, you know, in in uh, training camp, he has seemed fine, you know, and seems to have almost like a renewed um you know, fire about proving the Panthers wrong and and proving the Patriots right. We'll see how long that lasts into the season, but it's there right uh, right now. That if you compare those numbers, they're not really that different. Like we think about, oh my God, you lost Tom Brady, the the greatest of all time. He really the the Tom Brady era in a lot of ways had already ended last year. He was downright bad down the stretch of the year. He didn't have many weapons to throw to Gronk had retired. Antonio Brown had come and gone in, in a flash. Uh, and, and there was a lot of chaos around who he was throwing to, but I think also he was old, you know, and that's the yeah. biggest wild card about the, the bucks this year. Uh, thinking about them is Tom Brady is now currently an age in which no quarterback in NFL history has ever had a good season, a full season, <laughs> And then just to bring it back to the Patriots, yeah, I mean, even if Cam Newton replicates what Brady did last year, which was kind of a down bad year for Brady, hopefully he can do better than that. Uh, the Patriots lost a lot on defense, um, and and whether it was due to free agency or guys opting out due to COVID-19, we saw Dante Hightower uh, do that uh, and Patrick Chung. Uh, so they've lost a ridiculous amount of starting defensive talent uh with, with all of that and this was probably the best defense in football last year uh and and i don't know how much of that is going to be able to be replicated especially when you consider that in the nfl great defenses really don't last anywhere near as long as great offenses we talked about this with our own josh hermsmeyer i think around the 49ers and their defense 
looking ahead uh, after the Super Bowl uh, was just that when you have a great defensive performance, uh, it tends to regress back pretty hard the next year, certainly more than than a great offensive performance. And and also, I mean, the, the Patriots, it's like the Patriots are trying to win on the sheer force of coaching genius because Cam Newton is, I mean, what he does not have very many weapons. We thought Brady didn't have many weapons a year ago um, with New England. Uh, Newton, I mean, there's questions of running back. There's questions of receiver. There's like no tight ends to be heard of. So um, it'll be interesting if they can make that work. I think if they do make it work, it, it will be um, because of their defense, which as you said, um, is not likely to repeat what they did a year ago. Uh, Neil, as you had mentioned earlier, you know, the playoffs expansion this year, I had completely forgotten about that. I just t- totally slipped my mind until like yesterday. I was like, oh yeah, that is a thing that is happening. So only the number one seed in each conference will get a buy. Then the two through seven seeds will play. That'll be so incredibly weird with three wild card spots. Jeff, the, Adding a team to the playoffs obviously will have an impact, but how much is it likely to change the playoff races? I think, first of all, I think it's a good thing. I had forgotten to, for the record. <laughs> so I'm glad we're bringing this up. Um, I think there always are a couple teams that are, are probably definitely playoff worthy that don't make it, and actually teams that are capable of, of going on playoff runs that don't make it. You know, nine and seven teams. You know, like, let's say you're, I don't know, just throwing out a random example. Your quarterback gets mono um, and misses the first, you have to, you know, wipe off the first five weeks of the season because of that. And then you rally. And, and I'm not saying the Jets should have made the playoffs. They would have. It sounds like you're saying the Jets should have made the playoffs. But things happen in a season with injuries that often cause the record to be a little bit worse than than it might have been. You know, we'll see a star player miss a few weeks here and a team struggle, a quarterback miss a few weeks here. So now I think a team can kind of overcome that, maybe get into the playoffs in nine and seven. And there have been good teams that have missed the playoffs in recent years. You know, you, you look back at a couple of the Steeler teams that missed the playoffs and some of the Seahawks teams that missed the playoffs when they were pretty solid, but just happened to be in a conference that was loaded. And so that's good. I think the real impact, though, is taking away that bye for the two seed. Yeah. That that feels very significant because now you only have one team. It really makes the one seed, if it wasn't coveted already, it makes it even more coveted. So I think this will be good um, for, you'll see fewer teams resting the starters the last couple of weeks. And I, I think it, it'll it actually make everything more competitive right to the final week, um, even among the, the, the teams that have shored up their at least position in the playoffs. So we are playing this season against a backdrop of two huge issues in this country, the coronavirus pandemic and racial injustice. We know we know the protocols for dealing with COVID-19, though we obviously won't know how well they work until later in the season. We don't know much about how the league and individual players will deal with the social justice issues that we've seen a focus on in other leagues. What are you guys expecting to see? in that realm when players take the field, will players be kneeling? Will it be more of a, of a league wide show? Like it sort of was as the NBA or the, as MLB got started. What do you expect to see from that? Yeah, I do think, especially in light of, you know, the comments that Roger Goodell has made over the off season uh, and, and the league at least, you know, appearing to make more of a, a push in the direction of addressing uh, racial injustice, that there's going to be some kind of coordinated, you know, uh, attempt in the in the vein of MLB to kind of uh, uh, do it in an orchestrated way, I guess, which I think is interesting because, you know, the NBA, we talked about last week uh, at length about how they had done also, you know, very coordinated uh you know, shows of solidarity, but that maybe felt a little corporate felt, you know, kind of like, okay, we're, we're messaging in this, but you know, who knows how authentic it really is. Uh, and then, you know, the season was brought to a halt with, uh, over a very not, uh, you know, pre-orchestrated, pre-planned, um, you know, outpouring of emotion and protest. 
So I, th I think that, you know, we don't know what is going to happen uh, and, and what it's going to look like. I would be um, a fool to try to predict it, but I would not be surprised if in addition to coordinated efforts that there is some kind of crisis moment in the season in which there is an uncoordinated, you know, act of protest or you know, something that goes outside of the boundaries of what the NFL, because the NFL is trying to, I think all these leagues are trying to kind of keep things in this neat, tidy little box. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think, I think um, Goodell rightly has, um, I think, read the tea leaves here. I, I don't even know if they're tea leaves. I think they're pretty obvious. Um, you know, we, we've talked about the, how the polling has changed on this issue. And um, I think the efforts to sort of squash the protests what we've seen in the past, you know, we're, we're just not going to see it. And, but I think what we will see is, uh, from certain residents of, uh, Washington, DC, um, we are going to see, especially with an election, um, in these last couple of weeks until the election leads up, we're going to see them try to turn that into something. It probably isn't. Um, obviously, you know, I can't speak for the entire fan base of the National Football League, but at least <laughs> there's probably a lot of people who are not happy about what they will see in terms of protests. But I think it's now, you know, the league itself has clearly messaged, uh, you know, what side of this debate they're on, um, even without, you know, bringing up Kaepernick himself, which is probably, you know, Goodell's one fault on this topic. I think that's right. I I also I, I have a hard time seeing how anyone's going to be happy with how the football how how the NFL like reacts to this because I think people who who see protest as crucial to like moving this movement forward are not going to be happy with the like corporate nature of it. The like can you really have a protest if it's league sponsored? Like, what is that? It's not really a protest. It's just like sort of just corporate words. It's advertising. Um, it is. You're exactly, exactly. And then people who don't want to see politics in sports or people who are, have not confronted um, racism uh, in society don't want to see this at all. So I, I don't know. I feel like no one's going to be very happy with this. Um, and this is sort of the corner that the NFL has painted itself into. It'll be interesting to see how this all plays out starting in in two days. We'll, the season will get underway on Thursday. We'll know a lot more about a lot of things after that. I think we can end this discussion here for now. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about soccer. There is another major sports league about to get underway over the weekend. The English Premier League will start its condensed 2020 season this Saturday. So we have lured 538 producer and soccer chat veteran Tony Chow out of the virtual control room to talk to us about recent goings on in the run up to the EPL season. Hey, Tony, how's it going? Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So last year, and by last year, I mean two months ago, Liverpool ran away with the title. But Danny Higginbotham on ESPN FC expressed doubt about them being so dominant again. Yeah, I think so. I think obviously Liverpool last season, they were sensational. And, you know, they, they ended up walking the league. They were, they were that good. But I just think when you look at the squad depth that they've got, I think they were fortunate last season. Yes, the goalkeeper got injured, but they had a number of players I think there was seven, seven, seven or eight players that actually played 30 games plus started 30, 30 plus games. And for them to find themselves in that position next season where they're able to do that and able to rely on the key players, I think it's going to be very difficult. So I can see why they've looked at Manchester City and, and put them probably as favourites because of the strength and depth that they've got. And I think something that that's probably what Liverpool are looking at they need to do because they are so reliant on, you know, just a few players to get the goals in particular. So, Tony, is it the right call to doubt Liverpool's staying power? Does Manchester City really have that you know, terrifying an amount of depth? Well, I mean, Liverpool aren't going anywhere. Let's just get that out there first. <laughs> um, the one thing, though, is it is really hard to repeat in the modern um, English Premier League. I think the last team that did it was Man City, I think, in 2017, 2018, 2018, 2019. But then you kind of have to go back to 2006, I think, with Manchester United 
before you got the last repeat. So like it's not it's not a hot take to say, oh no, Liverpool aren't favorites, because I, I just think in general it's it's difficult to repeat as champions. But I think uh, he has a point in talking about the squad depth and over-reliance on players. Uh, I think last season, Liverpool had only two players that scored in double digits versus Man City's five players that scored in double digits. But if squad depth was an issue this year, then you could say that squad depth was an issue last year and Liverpool ran away with the title and City didn't win and didn't make didn't do that well in Champions League. So it's like, if it was an issue last year, it would be an issue this year. But I don't see how um, you could say Liverpool aren't favorites. I mean, Liverpool wasn't the favorite. Liverpool wasn't the best team in our, in the 538 model really last year either. I mm-hmm. mean, we thought Man City was the better team. Liverpool just like played way better <laughs> and finished games and, and got kind of lucky um, in some in some cases, especially before the the COVID s- stoppage. Um, so there's that too. That like. Man City was a good team last year. They just didn't they just weren't on this quite the same level as a like a breakaway Liverpool squad. Right. And on on paper, I think you could say Man City is a, a better team and maybe with a condensed season and the the competing in Champions League and all that squad depth will become a bigger issue this season than last season. So Man City might have gotten even more stacked if Lionel Messi's odd battle with Barcelona had ended with him leaving the club, which we thought was going to happen for a little while there. Jeff, what did you make of Messi's threat to leave and and possibly join the Premier League? I mean, I I don't usually take like transfer rumors or transfer speculation seriously until I physically like see the player in the jersey. <laughs> because we've all been down this road before a million times with just crazy things being reported and rumored. And then, you know, we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. I think it would have been interesting if he went to England. Um, I don't know if he really wanted to go to England because it's it's pretty physically taxing league. Um, he is 33. Um, you know, we've seen it, it is not a league. It, it's not a retirement home league. It's not the... <laughs> The MLS. I don't mean, like, it. Don't, 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 don't say it. Don't say it. All right, he said it. He it's said not it. the graveyard of elephants that is the MLS. Um, <laughs> wow. No. Um, but I mean, like, he could have gone to Paris, and and that would have been relatively cushy, just more of a Champions League play. Um, but it would have been interesting in Manchester City. I mean, obviously, I mean that was that was the first team that people started speculating. But I, I don't know. I, I think he realized he had to pay taxes or something, so he's staying. Um, <laughs> I was I was pretty sure I was I was pretty sure he was going to leave. I thought he was going to leave too. I actually thought he was going to go to Paris. Um, I, I thought that made the most sense because I think he really does want to win a Champions League. Um, and that's probably the, the best position to do it, you know, playing with those guys over there on that super team and, and then not having the week to week grind of the EPL. And also who wants to live in Manchester compared to <laughs> Barcelona or Paris or any place like that. So, um, it, it does kind of make sense, uh, that, you know, he's not going there, but it would have been interesting, man. It would have been really interesting to see him in the English league or, or see him on that scene with, you know, next to Kevin De Bruyne. I mean, it, that from a soccer fan perspective, it, it's it's a shame that didn't happen because that would have just been so much fun to watch. Yeah, I was I was really intrigued and was hoping that it would happen. I mean, yes, he is 33 years old and EPL is taxing, but I think if he was at Man City, he wouldn't, you know, Barca's tactic is like give the ball to Messi on offense. And I don't think that would be the case in, at Man City. And it would be interesting to see how he would like, integrate himself into that system and he's played with pep before so there is that comfort level there yeah and i think that was driving a lot of the, the speculation too yeah so tony you were talking about the you know the compressed season maybe being of a benefit to a team that like man city that has a lot of depth might the wear and tear of playing so many matches in you know such a short time contribute to any surprises at the top of the table? Are there are there teams that might kind of sneak in there to the top? For, for sure, I think if if you're going to make an argument that Liverpool or City weren't going to be favorites, um, 
it would be because the other teams around that area got stronger and Liverpool in particular didn't make as many like splashy moves as a team like Chelsea, for example, or Man United. Um, so if you were to maybe guess surprises, I think you could put Chelsea and Man United up there. Like what, what usually happens in the season is, like last season, for example, you kind of start seeing these clusters. I don't know if you remember, like for a while, it was like a cluster of one and two teams, Man City and Liverpool in the top, and then like three to 10 fighting, yeah, yeah. fighting, <laughs> fighting for like three, four, five, six spots, right? Everyone within like five points, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think what you could see this season though, because of that kind of schedule and because other teams got better, I could see a very competitive like top four race, one, two, three, and four, and like who knows what's going to happen between those four. And then a competitive cluster of like places five, six, seven, eight, potentially. Like because of the connect schedule, I think that the best teams are going to like differentiate themselves. But because of how good those best teams got, they're going to be closer together. I don't think Liverpool is going to pull away or any team is going to pull away from the season like they did last year. Do you see any of the like non big six? I don't know if the big six is still a thing after the the bad performance last year of two of those big six teams. <laughs> I don't even know who the big six is now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think it's a I think it's a I think it's a big four and then a big middle. Oh, that's sad. I yeah. assume Tottenham and Arsenal are kicked out of the big six. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you are are there some of the like other kind of surprise teams? Um do we see them making that leap this year or are the top four looking too strong? No, I'll be interested to see what Jeff thinks, but I really think the top four is a pretty sure combination of Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea, and Man United. Um, but one team I am looking at, though, is Everton, because they made some pretty big moves to fix that midfield, and they finished, I think, 12th last year. I could see them getting into Europe. I could see them getting Europa League. Listen, I don't think they're going to make Champions League, but I could see them getting into Europe after this. Yeah, I think getting uh, James Rodriguez is obviously fascinating. Um, it seems like if you go back to that World Cup he had where he was just such a breakout star, it, like I kind of wonder what's happened in the years in between. He obviously has a huge opportunity going to Everton. I mean, honestly, I'm a little dubious. I, I don't see it quite working. Um, yeah, I, if this was three years ago, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it seems like, uh, you know, a big name, but ultimately not the kind of guy that's going to really help them win a lot more. Um, but they're one to watch. I mean, I, I'm curious. You mentioned Chelsea. I'm curious about Chelsea and, and just how good they are, because they obviously had the most interesting offseason, you know, getting Timo Werner, getting a bunch of guys. Obviously, and they still have Pulisic uh, another year. Um, obviously, uh, friend of 538 and all American soccer fans. Um, so <laughs> I, I, think, uh, I think I think they're, to me, the most interesting club. Um, but in terms of that middle tier making the jump, I it, it just it seems like there's too much traffic in the way. I mean, I, it's obviously very, like, no one can come out here and predict a, another Leicester City. Um, I think a lot of people thought Wolves were going to be very competitive last year, and they were, but they're still not, you know, anywhere near the top or, you know, fighting for the, fifth or sixth fourth place maybe um yeah you can see a situation where there are like 10 teams fighting for fifth yeah. place so yeah. basically it'll be the same as last year yeah <laughs> which i don't know i feel like that's good for the premier league that there's i mean maybe there's still a barrier to the to the top four and or and also you know winning it um for most teams but that there's more of a um a push into that top level instead of just the like sort of nothing middle that it that had been there for quite a while where teams weren't really moving up or down they were just sort of stuck there yeah for sure i mean i don't think this season what i don't think it's going to happen where liverpool just kind of pull away and then the the middle group kind of gets pretty easily defined um towards the end uh jeff you mentioned chelsea i'm actually very very intrigued i actually in my predictions i have them finishing second um so i'm like really really high on that squad wait 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 second behind Liverpool? Uh, uh, no, Man City. I, no, I think Man is going to win. Ah! Uh, wow. I, I think Man City's going to win, but I'm, I might be like a bit too high on Chelsea just because of like an excitement level of seeing them all come together. Uh, they still have like very big question marks on defense, and they still have a really bad goalkeeper, and they let in the most goals um, out of the top four last year, so they still have those issues to deal with. But in terms of like attack, I'm, I'm very excited to see where, where they finish. 
All right, so you have Man City, Chelsea, one, two. Jeff, who do you see finishing top two in the league? It's funny how no one is predicting. I, I looked to spend a decent amount of time looking at EPL predictions this morning. No one is predicting Liverpool, which doesn't make a ton of sense. So I'll just <laughs> go ahead and do it. Say they repeat with City being second um, in these incredibly boring edition of, of <laughs> Wild hot <laughs> takedown speculation. <laughs> um, nice. I like it. <laughs> I, Look, I I'm, think... I'm just happy Leeds is back. We need Leeds yes. in the Premier League. Yes. They were that's a, a Premier League mainstay from back in the day. And it's been what 15, 16 years? It's been, been a while. Too long. Yeah. <laughs> too long. Yeah. So let's all root for Leeds. Let's let's or root for not. Leeds and let, let's let's root for them to stay in the Premier League and not get immediately relegated. I want all the classics back. I want, where's uh, Knott's Force these days? Let's bring them up, get all the old, old old-timey, old-timey, I'm talking about like the 1980s. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That that old, old, old old-timey. The old, the classic EPL bottom dwellers. (laughs) All right, so our takeaway here is uh, Chelsea's going to be good. Man City's going to be good. Go Leeds. That's our official yeah. stance <laughs> for the Premier League. I love it. Tony, thanks so much for joining us. See, talking about soccer, it's so much it's, fun. We love to do it. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I probably need a bit longer of a break. I've, I've been kind of soccered out. There's been a lot. <laughs> it does seem like we didn't have much time there. I, I thought it wasn't possible, but I, I, I almost got there. <laughs> I was like, wait, the season's starting now already? I know. They could have given us a little more time. That's okay. We'll be there. We'll be ready by this weekend. Yeah. All right. We will end this discussion here. We'll be back in a moment for our interview with Reed Forgrave. We are delighted to be joined by author and journalist Reed Forgrave, who has a new book out today, in fact, from the world of high school football. How are you, Reed? I'm great. Uh, my first book, so it's a uh, it's a new experience, and releasing a book during a global pandemic is uh, is interesting. But I appreciate you guys having me on and, and spreading the word. Yeah, absolutely. So, so your book, Love Zach, began with you reading an obituary for a young Iowa man named Zach Easter. What what struck you about his story and made you want to write a book about him? Well, you know, a obituary about a 24 year old man is always heartbreaking, right? Like no matter the circumstances of it. And, and Zach's was even more so when you, you look at his picture and it's just this big smiling face and a guy who really seemed to have the potential of the world in front of him. He was in the Iowa National Guard. He'd been voted soldier of the year, just graduated from a four year college with honors. Uh, just this likable, goofy kid that everybody loved and was trying to find his place in the world. But the sixth paragraph of this obituary just stops you in your tracks. Uh, I'm just going to read just a few sentences of it to you, if you don't mind. Uh, And it read, Zach was a selfless person. His last wish was to make sure that no one else has to struggle from head trauma like he did. It is important to Zach to tell his story about CTE, a disease he attempted to manage for years. And then it describes everything that he was going through in the final months, the final years of his life uh, inside his brain. And and this came from playing football, not playing college football, not playing in the NFL, playing football from third grade through high school. That jarred me. And it was a couple days before Christmas. I was back visiting family in my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And got on the phone with Brenda Easter, Zach's mom. And we're talking days after her son committed suicide. And less than two weeks after he committed suicide, or almost exactly two weeks, I find myself in their living room, on their living room floor, sitting for four hours on a Sunday afternoon, talking with his parents, talking with one of his two brothers, talking with his girlfriend, talking with family friends about the life that Zach lived uh, and, and about his massive struggles, Zach left behind a journal. He left behind a 39-page autobiography. His girlfriend passed on all these text exchanges uh, between them while he was uh, going through the spiraling descent. And it immediately struck me from that first meeting that this story is something more than just a family going through mourning, that, that Zach Easter's story 
and their family's pain says something about today's America and kind of where we stand as a sporting public, but also where we stand as a country. When you were sitting down to read Zach's journals, what were you what were you expecting to see from those? And what what surprised you when you got into hearing in his own words what he was going through? I was going through it wasn't just this one sheaf of journals. It was like his motivation book where he's like talking about the Tony Robbins book that he read. And it's like, you know, all of his military stuff. So I'm going through this and I finally get to this one journal, one of those mean journals with a black cover, one of those five star journals. And I start reading this and it's like June 20th, 2015 high journal. I decided to take a journal to help me with my memory. Here's how my day went today. And I think what jarred me most was this wasn't all darkness, darkness, darkness. You have this ping-ponging of emotions. And this is, from what I understand, very common with CTE, where Zach thinks he's he's like, I'm going to be on top of the world. He'll make this list of like life goals for the next two weeks and for the next 10 years. He wanted to, There was a very specific car that he wanted to buy. He wanted to be a millionaire. He wanted to go into finance and play the stock market. He'd say that one day, and the next day it would be like he's driving to a therapy appointment, and he can't bring himself to get out of his car to go into the appointment, and he thinks that his you know, life is not worth living. And you pair that, those really raw journals, with his you know, real-time text messages with Allie, who is his girlfriend, who often kind of acts as his cheerleader slash his therapist. And you see a picture of a guy who's, who's really trying. He's trying his hardest, but there's so much going on. But what struck me most about these journals is that it, there are points when Zach has hope, when he's like, I'm going to beat this. And then there are points where he completely loses hope. And you see his parents in, in these journals and you see Allie in these journals and these text messages trying to give him hope. And I think ultimately he just thought, I, I can't do this anymore. And he wanted, he saw his his death. And I know this is probably a controversial thing to say about a very touchy subject, but he saw his death as a sacrifice of sorts that he wanted his story to go out to the world to help save other people from going through what he went through. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, I think, uh, I, I saw you say that this is sort of a book about sports, but it's not a sports book. Uh, what, what in your mind is the distinction between that? Is it, is it just the human element that transcends the, the sports, uh, that, that serve as a backdrop to, you know, the life of somebody like Zach? Yeah, exactly. Look, you can look at this book and be like, uh, concussions, football, I know where this book is going. And that's not where this book goes. I, I do think that this book lives in the nuance and it should challenge your views. If you're a huge football fan, I hope this book makes you think twice about being a huge football fan. If you see zero value in football, if you hate this sport, I hope this book challenges your view in seeing zero value in football. This is not an anti-football book. Uh, I, I think Look, it's obviously a heartbreaking story, a cautionary tale about a young man whose life ended in tragedy. But it also goes into not just the risks of football, but the rewards of football. So, yes, this is a book that is about football, but it's really it's about parenting. It's about what it means to be a man in America in 2020. It's about raising boys. Uh, I think it's partially just about what we value as a nation. One of the things that surprised me most when I was researching this book, and especially going into like the history of football, is how deeply intertwined the sport of football is, not just with the military, but with the idea of America developing as a strong superpower. We talk a lot about toxic masculinity. I think in a way this book is about toxic masculinity, but that line between being a strong man who fights through physical and mental anguish uh, because that's what men do, there's value in that. And at some point that, that, that passes over into toxic masculinity. I think that's a really blurry line between those two. And I hope this book you know, makes you think about where that line is in your life as a parent, as a son, or just as a, as a human being. 
I think stories like like Zach's have made me really think about my fandom of football mm, yeah. and and how how to I guess I'm wondering how how do you reconcile the popularity of football as a sport and and being a fan of football with the damage that it does to you know real real people like Zach? Yeah, this is kind of the where the book lands at the end. The final chapter is sort of like the reckoning. How do we? You know, how do people in Zach's life feel about it? And they're conflicted. His high school coach is devastated by the destruction that this has wrought, not just to Zach, but he has two other people in his life whose lives were ruined by football, someone from his childhood and another player from a few years before Zach. Uh, And he says, you know what? I still ultimately think that there's more good to come of football than there is bad. Maybe I'm a hypocrite. Uh, It's entirely possible that I am because Thursday night, I'm really excited about the Chiefs kicking off the NFL season. I'm going to watch Vikings games this year, probably with with one or both of my sons. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to let my sons play football. I'm not sure if it matters because my wife is dead set against it, especially after (laughs) reading this book. Um, I hope football is saved in the long term. I do believe that this, and we talk about this, we're talking about concussions. But we're also talking about the the murkier area, and I think the scarier area of subconcussions, subconcussive hits. You know, the idea of unnecessary roughness—you can legislate that out of the game. Uh, you can stop illegal hits to the head. I think college football and the NFL have done, at the very least, a passable job over the past decade at taking that very seriously. But how do you get subconcussive hits out of the game? And I think the answer is I don't know. And science doesn't know. And when I went to a brain injury conference at the University of North Carolina, they didn't know. And they kept referring to the infancy of the science. We're not talking about a magic bullet coming in a year or two. We're talking about a decade or two or three before we can really get a hold of this issue. And you had mentioned that, you know, one of Zach's own notes talked about, you know, this, his own sacrifice, his desire to kind of make a positive change and, and get greater awareness out there about CTE. I assume that that was part of your motivation for writing this book and sharing his story as well. Uh, what would you personally like to see changed about the way that we talk about football, the way that we, you know, interact with with it as fans, like you just mentioned, you know, still watching the game, but like, should we think about it differently or like uh, what, what can we do aside from boycotting it entirely, which is, <laughs> you know, sometimes what it feels like the appropriate response. Is. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that is a great question. And one that I've been wrestling with myself for years. Uh, I stopped playing fantasy football because I felt if I'm going to, uh, to be a fan of the sport, I'm going to do it with eyes wide open and not because of some silly, but very addictive and lovely, uh, <laughs> you know, math-based game, right? Uh, I miss fantasy football, by the way. I really do. But I feel like <laughs> morally, that's the least I could do. Um, to be honest, like, it, scientists are divided on it. You ask Bennett Amalu, and there are plenty of scientists who think Bennett Amalu has become uh, more of an advocate and less of a scientist. But he says, Age 18, that's when kids can play full contact uh, football with pads because that is the age of consent. He likens it to smoking. And this has been an analogy that's that, that has been made in front of Congress, uh, football linked to smoking, something that people enjoy, but something that is inherently dangerous. To me, I, I think there are things that are being done about less contact in practice, about not playing uh, tackle football until age 14, figuring out a way around that. Uh, Pete Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, has uh, taught to his team, you know, really good football team. It's not like they they learn this way of tackling and they suddenly, uh, you know, are 2-14 and 14 because they don't play tough. They call it Hawk-style tackling. It's basically taking the head out of tackles, more, more like a rugby-style tackle. I think all those things are important. I think when I watch NFL games, when I see – a Vontae's perfect style hit. And if you're a football fan, you know, when I say Vontae's perfect, you know what I mean? I want that guy to be kicked out immediately from that game. And the presumption should be that he is suspended. Uh, And I mean, for that purposeful hit to the head, I think those need to be the NFL and college football, I think need to to do a little bit better job. They're, They're doing so much better now than they were 
five, 10 years ago. No, I think, I mean, I think this is a thing that all of us are wrestling with because you're right. There are, you know, really great things that come out of football. And then there's this really terrible thing lurking. And, and if no one in the league is willing to confront it head on, then that makes it all the harder. Um, and I think that's where, where I land that I want the league to deal with it because I want to keep being a football fan. I don't want to have to give it up. Um, but it's like right on that line. <laughs> it's, a, it's a culture thing too, right? Like yeah. rub dirt in it and take a lap. Um, right. That's I, I remember in Pittsburgh hearing, hearing that phrase when I was growing up, sort of said in jest, but there was, there was truth to it. Tough it out, young man. Um, you know, ESPN doesn't have those segments where they say he got jacked up. They don't glorify those hits like they used to. And oh my I, goodness, I remember the oh the God. old VHS tapes yeah. of NFL's hardest hits. I had that as a kid. I watched that Bone a lot. Crunchers, and you look back you know? and you realize it was such glorification of something that I think should have been obvious at, to us at the time. Like, Oh, this is not good for these guys long-term, but yeah. somehow I, I don't understand why, but uh, only in, like you mentioned, 2010, 2011, 2012 did really all, the majority of, of people that were even thoughtful about this stuff start to connect those dots and be like, Oh yeah, this is really bad. Isn't it amazing the way that we like compartmentalize our morality like no kidding that this was bad for the brain like i i when i was doing some of the research for this book i found a i think it was a 1948 scientific paper that was about you know they call it dementia pugilistica which is essentially cte and they were referring to it in boxers it was a study of boxers and the guys who had it worst like boxing fans knew this you know they refer to it as punch drunk uh and the guys who got it worse were the guys who were just you know, the guy who had the strong chin, who toughed it out. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Reed. I think you've given us a lot to think about um, and how we, we think about football. And your book, once again, is called Love, Zach. It is available today from Algonquin Books. Guys, thanks for having me. I'm a huge 538 fan, so uh, keep doing the good work out there. I enjoy it. <laughs> okay, that will do it for this week's show. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcast Store. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is mostly in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, Tony, and Reed, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.